0: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter
1: Lewis's Money Talk. talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis, welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday the 19th of September. You can find this podcast on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis Money Talk. That's also my page on Facebook and Instagram. And thank you for making this programme one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China Evergrande said Monday that the arrests at its wholly owned subsidiary Evergrande Wealth Management won't affect the company's operations. Shenzhen police detained some staff at the unit on Saturday, suggesting a new investigation that could add to the property giant's woes. Yesterday, Evergrande Property Services, the property management affiliate of China Evergrande Group, said it remains uncertain whether it can meet its debts in the next 12 months after offering guarantees to secure almost $2 billion worth of loans for its parent company. China is facing a sudden surge in FX outflows according to Goldman Sachs' preferred gauge of FX flows. China's net outflows were 42 billion US dollars in August, the fastest pace of outflows since December 2016 and that compares with 26 billion dollars of outflows in July. Foreign investors' net selling of equities through the stock connect channel rose materially in August contributing to the acceleration of outflows. Singapore's non-oil domestic exports plunged by 20.1% year-on-year in August, far worse than forecasts of a 15.8% fall. The latest reading marks the 11th straight month of contraction due to a further fall in both electronic and non-electronic products. An oil advance for a third day, with Brent pushing towards $95 per barrel following the OPEC Plus supply cuts. Saudi Arabia's energy minister insisted yesterday that the kingdom's decision to extend oil production cuts was not about jacking up prices. Brent crude oil rose half a percent to $94.43 a barrel after rising 3.6% last week, the third consecutive week of gains, and the tenth week out of the last 12 on today's Money Talk, I'm joined by Mark Michaelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Alicia garcia herrero chief economist for Asia Pacific at Natixis, and our US economics correspondent, writer, and broadcaster Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, PeterLewisMoneyTalk.substack.com, and you'll also find there my daily newsletter with plenty more business and finance information from around Asia. <laughs> On Wall Street Monday, U.S. stocks started the week little changed ahead of key central bank meetings in the U.S., U.K. and Japan. The S&P 500 inched higher by 0.1% to 4,454. The Dow advanced just six points. That's under 0.1% to end at 34,624. And the Nasdaq Composite was flat at 13,710. The US dollar index held above 105 on Monday, hovering near its highest level in six months ahead of the Fed's policy decision this week. The yen was flat against the dollar at 147.62 Japanese yen. The Bank of Japan is expected to refrain from any policy changes at its meeting this week, with the bank rate at minus 0.1%. The dollar was 0.2% stronger against the Chinese yuan in Shanghai at 7.2915 renminbi. And the People's Bank of China is expected to uh, release its loan prime rate decision on Friday. Hong Kong shares led losses in Asia, hit by further woes for the property sector. The Hang Seng Index slid 252 points, or 1.4%, to 17,931, approaching its lowest level in nearly a month after gains in the prior two sessions. The tech index tumbled 2.2%. Mainland Chinese markets rose slightly, with the Shanghai Composite up 0.3% at 3,126. Shares of China Evergrande plunged as much as 25% at one stage in Hong Kong, before recovering to end the day, 1.6% lower, as police detained some staff at its Wealth Management Unit, and shares of Country Garden fell almost 2%, ahead of a vote on extending payment of a local bond by three years. And looks like the Hang Seng is going to open flat this morning at around 17,930. And you can get more details on those latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk.
2: Peter Lewis's Money
1: Talk. Let's get straight to it and welcome our guests this morning. We have with us Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Uh, Good morning, Peter. And also with us, Alicia Garcia-Herrero, who is Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at Natixis. Morning, Alicia. Good morning. And over in Washington, D.C., as always, on a Tuesday morning, we find our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Morning, Barry. Good morning Peter. And it's in the US we're going to start because the financial landscape is going to be heavily influenced by the Fed's interest rate decision which will come in the early hours of Thursday morning Hong Kong time. The US central bank widely expected to keep rates at five and a half percent. The Bank of England meets on Thursday and then in Asia this week central banks in China, Japan, Thailand, Indonesia and the Philippines as well as Hong Kong's de facto central bank will be deliberating on their monetary policy direction. And Barry no point trying to predict what the Fed's going to do I think we know what it's going to do anyway don't we but the interesting thing I think about this meeting is we get the dot plots back again don't we where uh, Fed members get a chance to forecast what's going to happen uh, next year and then what's going to be particularly interesting I think is when do they think we're likely to start seeing rate cuts that's the key issue for markets I think right now isn't it.
2: Yes, I think you're right, Peter. You know markets, and uh, that's what uh, people will be looking at on Wednesday U.S. time. I think that um, there's not going to be any interest rate cut in 2023. We've only got three and a half more months. Um, gee, I don't see an early cut in 24, but it's um, the real change is that no one is now expecting recession. They're not even expecting slowdown. So these 11 rises over 16 months, taking Fed funds, the short-term rate of the Fed, to 5.5%, I think that's over. I mean, that's done. Mm -hmm. But it has not killed the economy. So I don't think there'll be any surprises. But as you say, people will be looking to see what the forecasts
1: are. Alicia, the Fed's in a bit of a happy position at the moment, isn't it? Because inflation is probably lower than where it was predicting when it came out with its last set of dot plots. And the economy doing better uh, than what it predicted um, when, it's doing, uh, uh, when it predicted made its last set of predictions. So not a bad position for the Fed uh, to be in. Do you think they're now on top of it and inflation has been conquered?
3: Well, I, I, I would say that, yes, it has been conquered, but it doesn't really mean that it will be a linear uh, a reduction. And, a, and the, we could have some surprises uh, uh, for the very simple reason that the economy is stronger than anybody had thought. So, you know, you could imagine that you could still see some second-run effects, some, some wage increases here and there um, that would make the stickiness of core inflation uh, uh, more sticky, if I may say so. so. So, But but I agree with you, and I would add one more point, that the Fed has been very successful, very successful. In fact, it's just amazing how successful it has been. If you look at the dollar also, yeah, I mean, we could have imagined a collapse in the dollar, uh, and people expecting cuts, I mean, I fully agree that it won't be before 2024 and perhaps not even at the very beginning. But that's not what people had in mind. So they avoided a collapse in the dollar. They avoided a banking crisis. They avoided, you know, they they, they controlled inflation and they avoided a recession. But, uh, How what? did it that? I don't know. But it's quite, quite <laughs> important.
1: Was was that down to luck? or? Because I mean, when you think about it, they started pretty late on the on the rate hiking trail, didn't they? Originally, they thought this was all going to be transitory yes. and were clearly wrong. So was there luck yes. in this or have they just judged it completely perfectly?
3: So, so basically, I think they were late, but the ECB was even later. So, you know, it's, it's hard to, to argue that the Fed was uh, totally wrong. Everybody was wrong, number one. Number two, I think they did, They did the SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, very well. Uh, They avoided contagion. Yes, they created a little bit of moral hazard here and there, saying the policies were guaranteed. But they managed. And how they did it, I think they didn't listen to the markets, sorry to say, because the markets were (laughs) uh, asking for cuts all the time, and Mm -hmm. it never came. And I think that resilience by the Fed uh, was extremely important.
1: Mark, you've just updated your IMA uh, third quarter outlook. Where does uh, and you've set out a number of uh, of risks that uh, that you know that could come to impact uh, the global economic outlook, and then more specifically here in Asia, where does inflation and rising interest rates fit into the list of worries among your members? Well,
0: it's, it fits in very strongly in places like India and elsewhere where it could have a a much larger impact in twenty twenty four even than it is now. So, it's still a worry. But I agree with both Alicia and Barry. They're, certainly, the expectations have gone down. The University of Michigan survey seems to indicate that as well. Politically, it doesn't do either Chairman Powell or, or the Biden administration much good, <laughs> for some reason or another, but, but it, it, they have managed it well. So, our forecast, and we don't know either, is that uh, the rates won't start to go down to at least the second quarter of next year, and maybe, and maybe a bit later. So, but still everybody's watching, and that's that's the key number. But worried about next year, less worried about China, interestingly, than, uh, than about some of the other economies in, in the
2: region. Hmm. Mark, I think that uh, Alicia's got it uh, absolutely correct. I mean, this has been a very successful Federal Reserve policy uh, escalation of interest rates, but yet it didn't do the damage that was expected. When you look at, I think she's also right, when you say, Alicia, that inflation is going to be sticky, it is a little over three now, maybe three and a half. It's going to be hard to get it to two. That's maybe part of the reason a lot of people think give up on two, but uh, we're still creating jobs or growing at two and two and a half percent. So it's, um, it's looking really good here, and we'll see what happens.
1: Is one of the reasons that, um, that, that things are looking better economically is because although mortgage rates have surged, they're above 5% now, aren't they? Most people aren't paying that. Most people are paying way below 3% even because they locked in their mortgages at these really low um, rates. How much has that been a, a big factor um, in keeping the economy on track?
2: Well, I'll, I'll take a shot at that. I think it's been very significant. But I think that um, we're going to see a slowdown in the housing market. I don't see how that can be avoided. It's already happening in commercial real estate, largely because of the work-from-home thing, which has really devastated so many properties everywhere in the country, probably lots of places in the world. But uh, interest rates are double that. Savers now, for the first time in 20 years, are being rewarded. We have positive real interest rates. It's extraordinary. So there's been a transformation underway. And yes, you're right, Peter, Uh, a lot of people have these long-term mortgage rates, 10-year fixed, 30-year fixed, they're okay. But anybody trying to buy a house now, buy an apartment, we've not yet seen a decline in prices, but I think that's coming. And the price, and when you add it all together in terms of what you have to pay, and what you have to pay to service your mortgage, it's a real problem.
1: Mm alicia tell us about the bank of japan because they're meeting as well of course this week in some ways this is more interesting um, than than the fed because uh, governor ueda keeps teasing us every now and then that it's going to move away um, at some point soon from these ultra low um, interest rates but then tells us that we misunderstood his comments and you know, things go back to where they were but surely surely at some point soon um, japan can't keep negative interest rates
3: well, absolutely, and I think there's two reasons for the BOJ to need to recognize that they can't be the one and only major central bank in the world with negative rates. First, the yen is very obvious. Secondly, uh, the fact that, you know, like their own uh, lifers, no matter how large the uh, the home bias is in Japan, I think their lifers are going to start uh, re. Uh, yeah, reinvesting. I say reinvesting because last year, actually, they, they repatriated a lot of funds. But I think at some point, unless, you know, something happens um, on on the shortest end of the curve, at least for money market funds, they're going to just put the money away and that's going to weaken the yen even further. So, yes, they have to do something, but quite frankly, I don't think it will be this week because they need to prepare the market. and uh, Otherwise, you know, it, it could be quite, quite uh quite wild, I would say, in the JGB market and probably the stock market in Japan.
1: Mm, I mean, it, this could have quite a significant impact, couldn't it, when the Bank of Japan finally decides it's going to exit this, uh, this ultra-loose monetary policy and rates are going to start moving up. It's going to be something that we haven't seen for um, a very long time. And when we just saw that tweak to the yield control curve last year, that, that had a big impact on the markets. Do you think the markets are ready for this?
3: uh well they they already saw the tweak on the yield yield curve control so you know we're already at one percent um i think they will keep it while they they move out of uh, negative rates so basically they will engineer um uh, a, a less steep curve for the moment and then possibly start lifting the yield curve control uh, limit uh, but i don't think it will it will go so far maybe some overshooting just because at the at, at the end of the day uh, japan's potential growth is low and interest rate should be low it's mm-hmm. not the us so you know i think it'll hover around one and a half when everything is lifted maybe zero zero point twenty five maybe zero point fifty maybe one and a half. So, you know, still steep, but slightly higher. I, I, I hope that's where they, it will stop. For the sake of the Japanese uh, MOF, which needs to pay the debt, interest, interest payments on the debt, I don't think interest rates can go very far in Japan because of the debt service being extremely large for for the government. So that's, that's in a, case, in, in a way, a natural limit to interest rates.
1: Okay. And Barry, do yeah, you want to the, sorry Mark. I, just just one quick point.
0: Uh, yeah, the the BOD I think way to understands the situation. He just is limited in what he can do for internal reasons. The Japanese making a decision in Japan, policy decision, is still very difficult for some of the reasons that uh, Alicia just cited with the MOF and others looking at this. So I think they'll move in that direction, but it will be um it will be slower, slower than expected. Saying that there are a lot of companies, including a lot of our members, and the reports from the U.S. Embassy, they're having to uh, to close the doors because there's so much demand for companies looking at Japan, you know, invest, reinvesting, putting new new businesses, expanding old businesses and so on, which is something we haven't seen for for many years. So we'll see how long that continues as well.
1: It seems the environment, the business environment in Japan, has completely turned around in about a year or so, hasn't it? It's been quite a dramatic change.
0: Yeah, and it is, and you know, they there is some confidence, although <laughs> the interest rates situation the, and the failure to uh, to to raise them to try to keep them even even below zero it is is an issue, and the and the weekend, of course, which can be advantageous for some, but. For this long a period and for, you know, no, no end in sight, at least in the, in the short term, uh, that, is, that is a little worrying, I think, for everyone.
1: Harry, do you want to have a crack at the Bank of England? They're the other major central bank meeting this week compared to the other two. They're in a bit of a hole, aren't they?
2: Oh, gosh. Their inflation's too high. They've got to come down on inflation. So I suppose that means there's going to be another hike. But uh, that doesn't do anything to help the economy. It hurts the economy. So it's a tough spot. I'd love to be a fly on the wall at the
1: uh, BOE meeting. I mean, this is stagflation, really, isn't it, that you're looking at in the, in the UK?
2: Yeah, I think so. It's, I mean, look, uh, there are too many uncertainties. And uh, I, I know Stuart Allcroft is there. He'll have a story to tell when he gets back. It's extraordinary. You know, the southeast is doing well. And yet, all of the uncertainties that came from Brexit in terms of being able to export into Europe, that's not resolved. And as a result, there's no real dynamism in the economy, only in services. And that's a problem. So, yeah, it's hard to be optimistic about
1: England. Okay. Well, let's switch our attentions to China. Um, Alicia, we had quite a lot of economic data out on Friday, the activity data. I suppose the standouts was the improvement in um, retail sales and industrial production, but it did look like that anything related to property um, still wasn't doing um, so well. But do you get the impression that overall, maybe things uh, there are signs of things improving?
3: Well, I would say that on property it's quite simple. you cannot fall from the floor. It's very very hard if you have four hundred thousand transactions a month, which is the the minimum ever in China, you're not going to see a further reduction uh all the all the less so if if you think about the measures taken by by different local governments to actually um support uh, purchases so so I would say that it's only natural that we don't see a further deterioration but we still have very negative price increases so basically decreases in in, in third-year cities so I think that we're going to see an increasingly dual market uh with uh, first year cities improving somewhat um but not not the rest and that's going that's not going to help uh, for common prosperity if you think about it yeah it's like you're going to have increasing income disparity in China. Uh, for the rest of the economy, very briefly, I think the data, what the data said is a little bit the same story. You cannot fall from the floor. It, it, it is better, but it still, I mean, retail sales are growing half of what they were growing before COVID. So the recovery is still quite, quite slow, I would say, if you, if you go back to pre-COVID, well, pre-COVID world.
1: Mm. We've got to forget the pre-COVID world, haven't we? We're not going to see retail sales growth of sort of eight percent or the likes that we yes. that we were seeing back in those days.
3: That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we need to forget it, but that, but, but we can't, we can't deny that we're not in a pre-COVID world. So, what I would say, yes, there is slight recovery. That's great news, but we're not back to where we were. Absolutely not.
1: Mark, what are your members saying about China?
0: We- well, that's the, exactly that. In the sense that the expectations, of course, were much higher for the Chinese economy this year. And although we're forecasting maybe a little better 2024 for China, but still the property overhang. But it's those expectations that are important because many of their business they expected to grow, and the consumer consumer sentiment is a good part of it. And although it's come back in some areas, it's not it's not very strong. Not nearly what they hope for and you know although they didn't expect pre-covid levels they expected better than they thought of course the us is an upside surprise but uh but but china's not and that's key to their to their businesses in in not only in china but in the rest of asia so even as they look for alternatives you know elsewhere in asia it just doesn't make up for for china Mm. in either production or or sales
1: it does seem we're seeing not just in china but but certainly in china but also elsewhere in the world as well in the us the eu um, in in india and elsewhere much more nationalistic industrial policies designed on sort of ring fencing certain industries protecting uh, certain industries is that how worrying a trend is that
2: well i think it's a worrying trend indeed and i think that um what the Americans want to call friend-shoring, I mean, that might have something to do with what uh, Mark observes about Japan. I mean, because people look at Japan and say, oh, they're a military ally, and they have now a very uh, a favorable exchange rate to put money in there. It's, um, gosh. Uh, so, yeah, to Japan and to, to other parts of Asia. It is, I think, a somewhat um, dangerous path, But it's going to accelerate, but it goes slowly. It's not decoupling. So maybe de-risk is a good term after all.
1: Alicia, if we're seeing this slowdown in China, it's obviously very noticeable, been very noticeable this year. What sort of impact is it having on the rest of Asia? Because so many of our economies around here, particularly in Southeast Asia, but not just there, are linked to China. So are you starting to see the impacts of that?
3: Well, uh, in some cases, say Singapore, uh, we just got uh, data, export data, non-commodity export data, is just terrible, minus 20%. Singapore is suffering. Also, I would say financially, because we have much more, much stricter capital controls from China. Yes, there are still outflows, but they're mostly portfolio outflows, you know, uh, stock connect, bond connect. I think for capital, outright capital flight, it's getting much harder. So Singapore is suffering. Overall, though, and I think this is the good news, if you look at Southeast Asia uh, more generally, let alone India, I think the impact is more limited than we would have imagined, because there is a lot of domestic demand, you know, supporting the economy. If you look at the Philippines, India, uh, these countries, Indonesia, they're doing quite well. So, you know, I I would say, yes, the impact is there, but it is less than we would have imagined. Yeah, that's, that's it.
1: And I suppose the the countries are suffering the most. The export orientated countries. Yeah. You mentioned Singapore, but also South Korea, Taiwan South as Korea. well.
3: Indeed, indeed. South Korea even more. I mean, even earlier in a way because of the semiconductor cycle being um, so negative in terms of everybody using the stocks they had accumulated during COVID. So yeah, uh, South Korea is suffering indeed.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to generalize. But Korea, South Korea has been a issue for, for a lot of our members in the sense that expectations are, again, expectations are stronger than they actually are in some of the areas that Alicia just cited. But parts of Southeast Asia and Indonesia is a good example, uh, you know, which is always problematic, but it's made some moves and it's, uh, it seems, the economy seems to be, uh, seems to be more attractive than the investment environment. You know, still there are issues with with foreign companies in Indonesia, but it's become, you uh, it's become more appealing, as as mentioned, as have the Philippines and a few other places we hadn't thought about as much in the last few years. We'll see if that's sustained.
1: Oh, and where does India fit in? Is India immune to what's going on the slowdown on the mainland?
3: I think India is the the by far uh, more. I mean, it's clearly the the case where you see actually, in a way, a positive impact because you have a lot of FDI coming to India. Out of China, or as a, you know, as as a as a response to China's woes, and also the need for reshuffling value chains. Uh, however, India has its own problems. Uh, two in particular. One is inflation, food inflation, and a central bank that is reluctant to hike in the midst of a, of a pre-election kind of uh, environment. And secondly. Um, th- a, a growing current account deficit again. So, you know, it, it's not about China. It's about India itself. It's not yet dramatic, but, you know, we, we need to watch. Um, it, it can get nasty before the elections.
0: Let me add to that. Export earnings is also an issue, or we see it at least. Resources, goods, tourism, you know, that that sort of thing, especially going forward. But inflation, I think, is 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 the big one.
1: Let's get your thoughts on the uh, the triple R cuts and some of the stimulus yeah. measures that we've seen from the PBOC. Sure. All very piecemeal, isn't it? But nevertheless, is yes. it having an impact?
3: So, two things happening. Yes, more liquidity are cuts. Uh, we have had a couple of uh, rate cuts, uh, still not very uh, large in size, but it does show that they're trying to help. PBOC is clearly trying to help. Constrained by the exchange rate, though because you know they are so weak they just can't uh, go all the way to zero interest rates in the- I mean it would be extremely dangerous for China but what is also happening and I think people aren't as fo- as focused on that is that local governments are issuing that like crazy I mean they they are basically exhausting the quota a, a renewed quota by the way that that was granted to them so I think on the fiscal side um there is some movement, maybe, be, as you said, below the rudder, but it is happening. Local governments are getting funding in China at the current juncture. Well,
1: what about fiscal policy, though? We need some supportive fiscal policy, don't we, to yeah. go with all this monetary um, sort of stimulus, yeah. which President Xi Jinping seems reluctant to do. He calls it welfareism, doesn't he, if he hands out money yes. to consumers? Um,
3: so this is the irony. He's quoting welfareism, and, and I guess he's not ready to introduce any welfare state in China. We hear him, and 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 it's clear. But local governments are not—I mean—are being allowed to fund new projects. So fiscal is laxer than uh, he seems to claim. Uh, in fact, uh, I mean, I don't know whether he's claiming that, but the point is that uh, the fiscal uh, consolidated fiscal deficit—if if we were—if we had those numbers—but we have. Something called augmented fiscal deficit, which is not fully consolidated. That's the best we can get in China, is around twelve percent of GDP. So it's not bad. <laughs> it's really not bad, and it's not getting any better in twenty twenty three, notwithstanding higher growth than twenty twenty two. Meaning fiscal policy is lax in China.
1: Mark, what would what your members like to see done in terms of policy initiatives to try and uh, speed up the recovery?
0: Well, I I, I think just just r- serious policy initiatives instead of the piecemeal and i know and i understand the piecemeal is done for for reasons worried about the uh, implications of some of the of going too far in various areas but this is you know this hasn't this hasn't made many of them who th- think about this any more comfortable mm. I, I mean basically as as was just described
1: Barry, let's let's switch to the U.S. Um, The thing I'm interested in is this uh, UAW um, workers' strike at the three big uh, Detroit auto workers factories. This seems to be raising some real alarm bells about the impact that this could have um, on the U.S. economy. Can you give us a sense of just how important this is? What's going on in Detroit at the moment?
2: Right, my home state. Look, I think it is a serious matter. However. Uh, I think the danger for the union is overplaying its hand. I mean, asking for 40 percent increase and let's say they would settle for 30 percent over four years, uh, that's still a very significant wage gain and this is the, the most successful and highest paid of the trade unions. Uh, so far there's only about 12, 13,000 workers affected. But if this strike goes on, then there'll be more layoffs. There have already been some from the two big companies. And it could become throughout to all 200,000 UAW members. This is good news for Tesla, for Hyundai, for Toyota, because they're non-unionized and they're operating within the United States market producing cars. And the Detroit 3 make about, what, 40 to 45 percent of all the cars produced in the United States the impact on the companies will be severe if the strike goes on for a week or two or three i think that's really going to have a negative impact on on uh, ford and general motors to i think is more a european company but uh, this is heavy duty and it's very difficult and delicate for the biden administration because they come right out and said that the executives were being paid too much the ceos and i think that's true by the way I mean, who needs 25 to $35 million a year? Which is what both GM and Ford chairman got during the 2022. So that is the strongest thing that the union has going for it. Public support is not really going to be on the union side. It is among the elite of the journalistic community. But uh, if the strike goes on, people are going to look too much at what these auto workers already make. Certainly, they all make at least 35 to $50,000 a year. And they have very generous retirement, very generous health care. What they want is protection against the inevitable layoffs in engine and transmissions, because electric cars and this transformation that's underway in the auto industry uh, means there will be fewer members needed. And secondly, they want to do something about the two tier wage system that was introduced way back in 2008 9 when the two companies, or at least Chrysler and General Motors went bankrupt. So this is a work in progress. I have no idea how this is going to turn out. Yeah, I mean,
0: extremely challenging, just as as, as Barry outlined. I mean, their their percentage of union workers is still is quite small compared to before. But what they want is really a situation before the uh, before the global financial crisis, especially in pensions and other areas, which is going to be very difficult. And as as Barry outlined for the Biden administration, they're between the classical rock and hard place, where they really, really can't move. He's shown his, his support, but it's not going to get him much. It might not even get him the UAW endorsement,
2: which you. Which oh, there's the no way. Yet. that a UAW yeah. would ever yeah. endorse a Republican candidate, let alone I know, I know. Donald Trump. But I will no. add this, uh, and we all remember the Reagan Democrats, but they were not endorsed by the union itself. Yeah. look. This is a serious problem, and uh, I, my own guess, Peter, would be that if the strike drags on, it'll hurt the two companies and all of their suppliers, but it won't have much impact on the United States economy.
0: No, I, I agree. I, I tend to agree with that. No, I wasn't talking about them endorsing Republicans sitting on their hands, you know, to a greater extent, which would have an effect. It just you know, just just adds to the to the turmoil in a in a in a in a atmosphere of a of a pretty good economy, as, as mm. we've outlined earlier today.
1: What about the impact on inflation, though? If, if they start to receive, well, it certainly doesn't sound like they're going to get 40%, but nevertheless, even if they received half of that, that doesn't that start to put pressure back onto inflation?
2: Yes, it would. But, uh, and again, that, that really does highlight the importance of whatever agreement is reached. If it is going to be seriously inflationary, But don't forget, if you're talking 20 percent, the companies are offering 20 percent plus over four years. So, you know, that's 5 percent, 7 percent this year. I don't think it's going to have a real problem. But as Alicia said earlier, inflation is sticky at three and a half percent. And it's not going to come down if you get a generous auto settlement.
1: Mm. It is noticeable, isn't it, though, that it's not just the, uh, the, the auto workers. The number of days lost to strikes is picking up this year, and that's presumably because workers are seeing um, – they've seen inflation go up. They're seeing their wages being eroded uh, by inflation, and they're now thinking, well, it's now our turn. We, we want our share.
2: You're absolutely right, Peter. And you look at these exorbitant, indefensible CEO salaries – I mean, Mm -hmm. this is outrageous. I mean, you would think that the companies would have thought of this before they went into negotiations with the union. But yeah, I think that uh, this is a serious issue for the companies, for the economy, but I don't think it's going to have a big inflationary effect. It is true that wages have eroded, but you see nothing of what you saw in the late 70s in terms of this escalator, the saying, I need a raise because everyone else has got to raise it hasn't spread through the economy and that up until this point has not happened if it does that's a serious problem
1: Mm. if people think their wages are being eroded now they've seen nothing compared to the 1970s you only have to say the word volcker (laughs) that that will that will get people's spine tingling a
0: side remark on asia it's not it's not strikes in our case but it is it is pressure on wages because Mm. There are fewer people available for companies. In many cases, they're having trouble finding them, bringing in talent, and if they find them, they have to pay them more, and then someone else will pay them even more. Especially, we mentioned India, this is happening in India uh, very quickly. So, you know, that, that's a worry for companies here. Even in Japan. absolutely.
2: Yes, Mark, you're right. Here in the States, anywhere you go, you see help wanted signs. That yeah. is also giving a boost to labor demands for more wages?
0: They feel they're in better position, which maybe they are, to to demand this.
1: And let me ask you both, while we're on the subject of uh, of autos, what do you make of this dispute between the EU and China over electric vehicles and the EU's uh, investigation into whether the Chinese EV manufacturers are getting subsidies um, or not and are flooding uh, the European market uh, with electric cars? Um, Who's right and who's wrong in this? Or are they both right and both wrong? Oh, go, well,
0: ahead, go, go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I think the latter, but in many ways, China does. Of course, they subsidize subsidize these companies, but at the same time, so does Europe. Uh, having having, yeah, so is Europe. Europe, maybe even more so, they subsidize a lot of companies. But I was just at BYD, for example, which is doing very well. And you know, the uh, the engineers and the engineering and the designs and everything are extremely impressive. They're very. They're very competitive, and you know this is a this is an old story. It happened with solar panels. It happened with a lot of other issues. In some cases, the European companies intervened with the EU, uh, with the EU hierarchy, saying, "Listen, this isn't helping us by by you doing this. We we actually we don't want to compete at certain levels. We want to compete at at other levels." And I don't know if that's true in automotive, but I I think this is a this is a a, a losing proposition for the EU in the end. But we'll. Again, we'll, uh, we'll see how far forward
2: it goes. But you can understand. Peter, my response it. would be, um, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. Because the surge of exports into Europe and the United States from China, which is building a high-quality car at a much lower cost. And now, BYD's, ended, you,
0: and they, yeah, they've entered the top 10 now.
2: Yes. In auto how production. do you compete with that when you've got, and to come back to what we were just talking about with the Auto Workers Union here in the States. If you're going to get a boost in wages, are you saying that these are the most productive auto workers in the union yeah. in in the world? Nonsense. They're not. The Chinese and Japanese and Koreans are. So you know this is a real problem for the Americans. And I think that um, I, I think I've said this before. There will be restrictions. There will be limits placed on Chinese electric vehicle sales in both Europe and the United States sure. if this continues. Yeah, and.
0: and, and uh, but the Chinese will continue to make, and there'll still be demand. I mean, this is, this is a, you know, even this this issue, sort of that Barry raised, in terms of the effectiveness of Chinese manufacturing, the reliability. This is the issue with China plus one and two. Yes, companies are diversifying, but at the same time, they're not finding the same atmosphere as in China. India has significant problems in manufacturing; always has had uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of the operating environment taxes and charges, all the rest of it, uh, China is much more reliable. So even with the higher costs, even with the geopolitics, uh, it's hard for a lot of companies to really make a, a big commitment.
1: Isn't part of elsewhere. the problem also that the Chinese market is such a cutthroat market, isn't it? They, it they is. sell cars on just the thinnest of margins. And, and most of these companies aren't profitable anyway, but there's no way that the Europeans and the Americans can compete uh, with those sort of prices. Amen.
0: Yeah, that's right, and you know, I think it's that competition is being encouraged by the government as far as i can tell and especially in the ev area where there are a lot of competitors
3: Mm.
1: how big an issue is batteries because if you're going to buy an electric car the batteries are um, the the biggest part of that aren't they and and china manufactures its own batteries and does it very well because it controls a lot of the the raw materials you need whereas most um electric car makers i think apart from tesla tesla's the only one that has its own battery uh plants this is where they struggle isn't it in europe and the u.s apart from tesla
2: Correct. And, yeah, as long as we're going to use lithium, then the Chinese have got an advantage. But um, Musk likes to say there's lots of lithium around. And uh, we may not have uh, lithium batteries in future. We may have a different, we may have hydrogen, we may have any number of things. I think the bottom line, and maybe it's so obvious that it doesn't require saying, but I, I, I want to say it. This is a historic transformation no one expected it to happen this quickly it's happening everywhere asia europe north america and it does not seem that it's going to be reversed the consumer is not the one who's calling the shots dominant shots it's the industry itself they're all responding to the call for a green world
1: and my goodness it's moving quickly Okay. well, on that note, I think uh, we'll wrap it up today. Thank you very much for your your thoughts there. You heard our U.S. economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. Mark Michelson, who's chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and Alicia Garcia Herrero, who's chief economist for Asia Pacific at Natixis. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Feil, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Corinne Hearn, Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group. And we're also going to take a look at Vietnam tomorrow with Rushir Desai of Asia Frontier Capital. Bye for now. Money Talk.